0: Welcome back to the program. We are deep in the heart of back-to-school season, and it's worth noting that we've had dozens and dozens of conversations on this program and elsewhere about the improvement in mechanics of education, about its need to transform itself into the modern world. But rarely have we ever stepped back to examine or even question the purpose of that education, in part because the answer always seems like, to paraphrase Bill Clinton, it's the career, stupid. But should it be? Should there be a higher and more noble purpose, particularly to higher education, as education moves more and more towards modeling the workforce, that is being about collaboration and problem solving? Are we losing something? Has the worship of STEM and Wall Street and the abandonment of the traditional liberal arts education left us in a lurch that has implications that ripple out to impact almost every aspect of society? If that's true, then there's no app for that. There's only the conversation started by my guest, William Doresowitz. William Doresowitz is an award-winning essayist and critic. He taught at Yale and was a graduate instructor at Columbia. His essay, The Disadvantages of an Elite Education, has been viewed over one million times. He's a contributing writer to The Nation, The New Republic, and The American Scholar. It is my pleasure to welcome William Doresowitz here to talk about his new book, Excellent Sheep, the Miseducation of the American Elite. Bill, thanks so much for joining us. Thank
1: you very much for having me on.
0: Great to have you here. There was a time not that long ago, it seems, when we looked up to liberal arts education, when it was something to be admired, something to be uh, taken pretty seriously. How did all of it begin to change?
1: Uh, that's a good question. You know, I, wanna, I do want to say that I don't, I don't think there was ever a golden age but I do think there were there were times when we thought of education in broader terms, and I think we gave students or aspired to give students a better kind of education than we do now. I think a lot of this is a social or a cultural problem. Uh, we've increasingly become a society in the last 40 years that seems to value only that which can be bought and sold, only that which can be measured, only that which can be understood in monetary terms. Uh, and our educational system reflects that. Uh, we used to believe that education was also about citizenship and preparing people to be citizens. How often do we even hear the word citizen anymore? Now it's become a really sort of a training school for the workforce exclusively. I'm not saying that isn't very important. It is very important. But there are other purposes that we're forgetting about and that are broadly captured by the term liberal arts.
0: To the extent that this is part of the commodification of everything, I guess the broader question then becomes, is it chicken or the egg? Is what we've done in education led to other aspects of the commodification of society, or vice versa?
1: Yeah, there's no question that it goes in both directions. This is not... All the fault by any means of the education system. But there used to be an idea about and within the education system, and especially among colleges and universities, that their mission wasn't simply to just go with the flow. It wasn't simply to just give the rest of society exactly what it wanted, but to act as a cultural force pushing for a certain set of values that the educational system believed in and wanted to see realized, like critical inquiry. Uh, uh, imagination, uh, the notion that there are there are things in life that are worth doing that aren 't about getting and spending that really largely seems to have disappeared, especially at the most prestigious institutions.
0: to what extent has the democratization in some aspects of various parts of society? contribute to, to this, because in many ways, the kind of liberal arts education that we're talking about, particularly at top-tier universities, had a kind of elitist quality to it.
1: No, 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 I disagree. I, I, I recognize that a lot of people believe what you just said, but it's a false narrative. The narrative goes... Back in the 19th century, you know, the, uh, the, the aristocratic sort of education for the rich waspy boys could afford to be about, you know, liberal arts and contemplating the eternal truth and so on and so forth. And then there was a large influx of middle class and working class kids, and they just wanted job skills, uh, and, and they did away with the old system. And the problem with that narrative is that it leaves out about the first two-thirds of the 20th century when we had a a huge expansion of public higher education and a huge influx of other students into the system, those middle class, working class students an explosion in the college age population. But at the same time, even as that was happening, there was a broadening of the idea of the liberal arts. Um, just, you know, people also point to the fact that the heyday of the liberal arts was in the nineteen sixties. Well, that's exactly when we had this huge influx of students. It was in the you know it was after the war. Um, the reason we have English departments, for example, in American universities and teach Shakespeare and teach Hemingway at the university level was precisely to provide a liberal arts curriculum for students who hadn't studied Greek and Latin. So it was very clear, you know, central to the idea of the expansion of public higher education, democratization, as you put it, was precisely a democratization of the liberal arts and a recognition that they weren't uh, simply things to be reserved for people of leisure, but that they belong to everybody and that they were especially important for people who are going to be educated at a higher level and assume positions of responsibility in society.
0: How did the universities and colleges respond to this in terms of their admissions policies? It's, it's much of what you talk about in the first part of the book, how the universities bought into this idea that we've been talking about.
1: Well right, I mean this is again this is an, an important piece of the history that, and it's important to get it right. Uh, there was this old sort of wasp aristocracy that, uh, reproduced itself through higher ed. Basically, if you went to a New England prep school, you were a white Anglo-Saxon upper-class male, you got into an elite college. Uh, there was a recognition growing through the middle of the 20th century that that just wasn't going to work. Too many people were being left out. Too much talent was being wasted. And so we we slowly and then very quickly in the 60s switched to the system that we're familiar with, SATs, uh, grades, and so forth. We call that meritocracy. It was a great idea. I mean, this was a real dem, democratizing idea, and it and it and it really created a social revolution. And and you know we have an elite now that looks much more like the country, uh, and opportunities were opened that had been unthinkable. The problem is that in the 50 or so years since that meritocratic system was put into place. Uh, affluent families have figured out how to game the system. Uh, it takes a lot of money to produce a child who's capable of competing in the college admissions uh, game, especially as it's evolved to the point where kids need, you know, seven or eight AP courses, 10 or 11 extracurriculars, a musical instrument a sports, a sport, foreign travel, service, leadership, all this stuff that I think many families are familiar with. Um... All that takes a lot of money, and there's been a resegregation, so this time a socioeconomic rather than a racial or gender resegregation of elite higher education, so that, for example, a large-scale survey of selective colleges, it was like the top 250 selective colleges, not just the Ivy League, found that 75% of students came from the top quarter and 3% came from the bottom quarter. So it's it's uh it's democratic in theory but not in practice.
0: To what extent has this change also been tied to changes that we've seen in public universities?
1: Right, that's the other big part of this. I mean, the truth is that the democratization of higher education was only uh secondarily about opening up the elites, the elite schools, and much more about this enormous expansion of public higher ed and I don't need to explain this to anyone who lives in California. Right. You guys built the best system in the world, and, and it was tuition-free until the early 1980s because there was real public commitment behind it. And that um, uh, expansion of public higher education created the world, was instrumental, wasn't the only thing that did it, but it was instrumental in creating the world's first mass middle class, confident, expanding, uh, secure middle class after the war. And very simply, again, starting in California with a tax revolt in '78, uh, we just decided we didn't want to do it anymore. Just like we decided that we didn't want to continue to invest in our physical infrastructure, we didn't continue to invest adequately in our mental infrastructure. And that's the main reason why we have this huge problem with student debt. Public uh, funding for higher ed is now half half of what it was 30, 35 years ago. And it's not because of the financial collapse, although that obviously exacerbated it. It's a long-term trend.
0: There's also, along with that, the growing disregard of institutions, public institutions in particular, but large institutions in general, which has been going on for 40, 50 years. Somehow that seems to play into this.
1: Well, I question that. I recognize that there's obviously a lot of anti-institutional feeling in society, uh, nobody, I don't, there doesn't seem to be a lot of anti-institutional animus against Ivy League colleges or Stanford. Uh, They're among the most venerated institutions in the country, I think, certainly the most envied. Um, so if there's, if there's a um, if there's sort of ne- negative feeling about public institutions of higher ed, I would say that it's less about the institutional part and more about the public part. Because it's clear that there's been that there's this very strong anti-public feeling that is exactly what we associate with Reaganism or neoliberalism or conservatism. Uh, this assault on the public sphere, the private sphere does everything better. Um, I think that's an enormously pernicious idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the private sphere does some things better, and there are many things that are better left for the public for all kinds of good reasons, like the fact that we want those institutions to serve the interests of the public, uh, on a person by person basis, and not the interests of wealth on a dollar by dollar basis,
0: of course, underlying all this is is what you deal with in the second part of the book, which is really looking at what college and universities are for, what purpose, what role they they should serve in society
1: in society and for the individual, you mentioned the subtitle of the book. Uh, The Miseducation of the American Elite and the Way to a Meaningful Life. It's a long subtitle, but those two parts are important because I present this critique, the miseducation uh, part, but uh, a lot of this book is addressed to individual students. It's It's about the student experience and who these students are being made to be, and it's also about what they can do and implicitly what their parents can help them do, what their teachers can help them do to find a different way through the educational system. I mean, I think there are ways, obviously, that we should reform the system. But I also know that kids can't wait for the grown-ups to get their act together. So I talk about what college should be for, uh, which is not just career preparation, although, again, that's important, but um, for lack of a better term, figuring out who you are, really creating who you are, building a self. I mean, the way I put it is this. You shouldn't go to college with the idea that it's going to help you do X. You should go to college with the idea that that you are going to become a different person when you come out. You are going to be interested in things that you never imagined before. Uh, You're entering an open-ended process uh, with an open-ended result. Uh, That's what colleges should be helping students do, and that's why the liberal arts are so important. Uh, That's also why small classrooms are important mentorship from teachers are important is important and by extension supporting teachers by actually paying them at real salaries instead of hiring adjuncts on a per class basis as colleges increasingly do is so important
0: there's also Seemingly an attitudinal change. Historically, young people, I mean, it goes back to, you know, you can go to Rebel Without a Cause, and, and somebody asks, James, you know, what are you rebelling against? And the answer is, whatever you have. What they, do you they, got? Yeah. Well, what do you got? <laughs> there, there's this, there was this revolutionary sense and questioning of the world sense on the part of, of young people, of college-age people. That seems to have vanished as well, or at least gone into remission.
1: Again, I want to be careful about this, because I think a lot of what I say people people have a tendency to say I'm just nostalgic for the 60s, and I think it's partly because our historical memory largely doesn't extend before the 60s. But as I say in the book, the 60s was only one particular manifestation of really what's been true of youth for the last couple of hundred years, really dating back to the age of the American and French revolutions which was the sort of the mission of youth, the self-understood mission, was to question everything, was to rebel. Um, For the sake of rebellion, maybe sometimes, but really for the sake of imagining a different world, a better world. And that happened repeatedly. And the civil rights movement, the feminist movement, the gay rights movement were the latest manifestations of things that had happened many times before. Like I said, it was sort of the default setting of youth that does seem to have changed, and not recently, but again, about the same period we're talking about, 30, 40 years. I mean, I was in college in the early 80s, and I certainly saw it then, sort of the heyday of the Reagan youth and the contempt that people had for idealism and the cynicism they had about anything except making money. It does seem that millennials are actually more socially engaged than certainly than my peers were. The problem is that I think especially on selective campuses, the so-called best and brightest, maybe the kids who are in, will be in the best position to do something. Um, there's kind of a small bore idea about what change means. It, the, 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 the mantra seems to be to work within the system and solve specific problems. And that's great. I mean, I admire that. But what if the system is the problem? What if we need to engage, uh, you know, not build a nonprofit or create an, an iPhone app to solve a specific local problem, which seems to be the mindset, especially if you go down to a place like Stanford, but engage the political process, which is much more difficult, much messier, much less sort of personally gratifying, to make systemic change. That's the thing that I, I seem I is missing. I mean, the Occupy Wall Street movement was that, but it, it turned out to be fairly short-lived, and I think notably weak on selective private college campuses
0: in many ways this is a continuation what we're seeing on college campuses is a continuation of what we're seeing in education in so many respects that it is much more about teamwork and collaboration and knocking off those rough edges
1: yeah right uh... right this is something i talk about uh... i i mean i should say i mean i taught for fifteen years i really liked my students they were great to teach and to be perfectly honest, one of the things I liked about them was that they were very easy to get along with. They were all extremely nice, affable kids. But at the same time, that's one of the things that most frustrated me about them. And I wasn't the only one. I mean, my colleagues and I would say, would say to each other sometimes, you know, I just wish one day one kid said, you know, I think you're full of crap or, you know, I think this is all BS. I mean, there wasn't that kind of resistant spirit. And I do think it has to do with I think partly it has to do with the way kids seem to be raised now, exactly what you said. There's sort of this desire kind of right from pre-K on to um, suppress any kind of antisocial emotion. It's all about cooperation and sharing, and of course those are great things. But the antisocial emotions, uh, anger, dissent, resistance, disagreement, even rhetorically violent disagreement, those, those have their place, and if things need to be shaken up, whether it's in the classroom or in society, then those kinds of things need to come out. I, I mean, I, I'm really struck, like, there's this, there's this instinctive effort always to seek for consensus and agreement among young people, and always to be conciliatory, and always to be polite, and always to take care of other people's feelings. And again, generally speaking, that's a great impulse, but it, it can really go too far if there's nothing
0: balancing it in many ways, it's, it's a feedback loop that's going on because many of these same kids, particularly the ones you were seeing in, in the institutions you were at, have been programmed since childhood to go along the, everything was a problem to be solved as you talk about a checklist to, to be checked off
1: right right I mean this is the, I mean this is the real heart of it uh, because I talk about colleges and I think colleges are creating the system, but what they're creating is the admissions process that in turn shapes the whole K-12 experience, especially in affluent communities. I'm sure perhaps a lot of your listeners in Marin County and in Northern California and certainly Silicon Valley and in many other parts of the country will be familiar with the kind of childhood that affluent, you know, upper-middle-class and upper-class kids are subjected to. And it's this achievement mill, This people talk about the checklist childhood, they talk about the resume arms race, and a lot has been written about this at the high school level, uh, and even before high school, how stressed these kids are, how they never have time to think, how they don't have enough time to sleep, how it's just one... Uh, one test, one problem, one project after another. And I mean, a lot of kids have talked to me about this when they are a little older, a lot of high school teachers, that there's literally, literally never any time and never any thought about talking about why are you doing this? What is education for? What do you want to do with your life? What do you want to do with the next year of your life? So what I saw among my students is kids who are, as a result of this process, extremely capable academically. There's no question about it. They're like, like all-American athletes, you know, in the, inter, in the academic realm. But they often had no idea what they wanted to do with their lives and no uh, way of figuring out what they wanted to do because they'd never had to figure anything out before. You know, no, there was sort of no... In some sense, there was a very weak inside, you know, that thing inside that determines what you want, they had formed themselves exclusively in relationship to adult expectations and thought of themselves, you know, you ask a kid to sort of tell you about themselves now, a college student, and they'll, they'll like list the activities they're involved in. There's no narrative about themselves, let alone say a philosophical idea. You know, I'm an existentialist. I'm a, I'm a Marxist. I mean, you know, the kinds of things that kids would have said about themselves, it's, it's, it's a, it's a very different self-conception, and that's ultimately what my target is, that kind of self that's being formed.
0: And to the extent that it isn't formed before they get to college, and, and there's no real muscle that develops, so to speak, for holistic thinking or any kind of vision of the world, it's hard to imagine how it's going to spring full-blown once they get there.
1: Well, again, I don't fully agree. I mean, obviously, I think the first thing that needs to happen is that either we change the admissions process or the higher ed system so kids aren't brought up like this, or individual kids and families need to simply dissent from it and drop out and understand that they might be giving up the opportunity to go to Stanford. That's true. But that doesn't mean that even before those things change, college can't have an effect. I mean, you're still only 18, uh, you're just beginning your young adulthood. This is the time, really, that your thinking takes off, that your personality can take off, uh, you know, in terms of, of beginning to explore what it's going to be as an adult. You're away from your parents for the first time. You know, I tell kids, don't call your parents every day. Don't even call them every week when you're in college. Let this be your own experience. And I think it can be a very heady time for kids, and I think also, now, you know, all the things that I'm talking about is missing. They're really actually under there, in terms of like the hunger to think about this stuff, idealism, curiosity, the sense that there's something more to life, the sense that there's something more to college than just sort of continuing to kind of punch your ticket. Um, And, and that's why there was this response to what I wrote six years ago, the million views that you talked about for that essay, because there was this hunger. There is this hunger out there because I think it comes naturally to young people. And given a few professors who, who are willing to, um, to, uh, to devote the time to be real mentors and real teachers and, a, and an environment in college that encourages that kind of exploration. And there are colleges that do it, by the way. You know, this is a real possibility because it's actually happening in some places. I think, you know, a lot can be accomplished whatever you've come from in K through 12.
0: I want to talk about it, as, as you do later in the book, in terms of the larger social implications of this, the kind of society that it's giving us, the kind of leadership class that it is giving us, and really what the result is in terms of, of the problems that we face today.
1: Right. Well, that's the thing. Um, we talked about the meritocracy before and how it was instituted roughly 50 years ago. And if I think, if you look at the leadership class we've had, maybe not the last 50 years, but the last 20 or 30 years, you know, once those people grew up to be our adult leaders, we see the same kind of excellent sheep, to use the title of my book, as I have seen in the college classroom. it makes perfect sense they are they are first of all i think we all recognize at this point after the last 10 or 15 years that our elites are comprehensively failing and not just in government but in the corporate world the financial world uh... i would say the non-profits the media universities themselves and they all tend to be failing in the same way um... they're very self-serving they're very self-enclosed they're very self-satisfied uh... They're cut off from the people around them, the society as a whole. They don't seem to really know what the experience of, regular, of most people is like. Uh, and they're also timid, risk-averse, unimaginative, narrowly technocratic. You know, they're really good at solving problems. They're really smart at solving problems. They're not really good at figuring out what the good problems are to solve. And they're not good at having the imagination or the courage to make fundamental change. And again, whether it's government or in an institution.
0: And as a result, it's not really making the world better in any substantive way, although it may be solving some problems along the way.
1: Well look, I mean it's funny because you you, sometimes you'll you'll talk to kids, say kids at Stanford, and their perception is that, hey, the world's yeah, sure, the world's getting better. Basically the meritocracy is creating a world that's getting better and better for the meritocracy and worse and worse for everybody else. I mean if you're sitting in the top ten percent, the world certainly is getting better. First of all, you're making uh you're getting more a larger and larger share of the national income. That's true, the top ten percent, not just the top one percent. You know, your your gadgets are better, your food is better, life is getting a lot more fun. Uh in those, you know, in those sort of upscale enclaves, things are really going well rest of the country, rest of the world, they're not. I mean, wages have been flat for 40 years. Social mobility has stalled. Uh, inequality is getting worse. College costs more and more for most people. I mean, go on down the list. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, I mean, if listen, if the world were getting better, if our elites were succeeding, I, I wouldn't be making this argument. And, you know, once upon a time, around 1989, when the Berlin Wall came down, and then a few years later, Bill Clinton was elected, I really thought things were going in a good direction. Uh, and it's clear that they're not. And and if our leaders don't bear a lion's share, of the respons- the lion's share of the responsibility for that, then in what sense are they our leaders?
0: Where, if anywhere, without talking about grandiose solutions or any kind of magic bullet along the way, because arguably there isn't one, but where do you see signs of, of encouragement, perhaps, signs of hope for moving beyond what we've been talking about?
1: Well, I mean again, I mean I have my own ideas about what we need to do as I've suggested, but in terms of, you know, actual hope that exists now, I think the thing that's most hopeful for me is that it seems to be the case that families and students are beginning to rebel against this. I mean, certainly among families, for instance the movie Race to Nowhere, which is about the crazy achievement stuff in again K through twelve and I think was made by a filmmaker in the Bay Area. And other and other sort of alternative schooling movement type stuff, uh, you know, some parents are deciding and deciding even collectively and banding together that they don't want to subject their kids to this, and they want they want something different for them. Uh, I think that's ultimately where the change is going to come from because colleges and universities uh, are not going to change until they have an incentive to and. The thing, you know, government could apply pressure, but really it's their customer base, and that's families. So that's what makes me
0: most hopeful. William Derisowitz, the book is Excellent Sheep, The Miseducation of the American Elite and a Way to a Meaningful Life. Bill, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.